welcome to episode four of Nevermind the Ballads. Episode four, we are over halfway through the series so far. On this week's show, we have Emily Kent. Now, Emily co-founded and is the director of One Big Circle, a Bristol startup, and she's coming to talk about Bristol as a place for small businesses. Is it a good place to foster new talent? We also have Anthony Negus, who is the leader of the Lib Dem Group, and he's talking about how the council can work with supermarkets to reduce food waste and reduce their environmental impact. And then finally, I bring along the libraries. What is the future of the library service in Bristol? So remember, you can rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app. So without further ado, let's crack on. I'm joined today by Emily Kent, director and co-founder of One Big Circle, a Bristol-based tech startup and leader of the Lib Dem group, Anthony Negus. So Emily, I'm going to come over to you first. Bristol is always portrayed as a very thriving home for startups and new businesses. Is this an accurate perception? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think I always maintain that Bristol is a really aspirational city um, and not just from kind of financial rewards, but from every kind of aspect that you might want to achieve with your with your life and with your ambition. So, so whether it's to um, start a pop-up food store, whether it's to start a tech startup, whether it's to achieve a better work-life balance, to reduce your commute, there's there's any number of things. I think Bristol is, is um, provides that on, on a number of levels and certainly from a kind of company small startup point of view there's a really wide range of both physical facilities and mentorship facilities that enable people to really take an idea um, and start to formulate that and and build that into a successful business so yeah there's there is absolutely in Bristol is there's there is the culture and the drive for that yeah so am I correct in saying that one big circle that started around six months ago and why did you choose Bristol? We chose Bristol because there literally is everything we, we need here. There are the skills and I guess there's another discussion about whether the skills, you know, whether there are enough skills here to feed the vacancies that there are. And that, that, as I say, that's a whole other discussion. But um, we, we chose it because there are the skills here. There's, as I say, there's the physical infrastructure here. There's, there's the clients here as well, increasingly so. So, yeah, and it, it's a fantastic base to be transport wise as well. It's a great hub. People, I haven't heard one, we haven't met one person who's been disappointed at coming to Bristol for a meeting or anything you know people do enjoy coming here it's a place that people want to come and experience a bit because it has that reputation so for all those reasons it, it's, it was a really powerful draw for us to be based in Bristol yeah now a lot of um what makes Bristol great in terms of business startups a lot of that seems to come from kind of the private sector there's a lot of support there in terms of council and its role in small businesses do you think it's providing enough support and the best place to facilitate SMEs? Yeah, I think I, I sort of mentioned earlier about the um, ability to kind of pop up and trial things as well. I think there's um, there is provision for that, you know, to, to enable that in some. Um, uh, I think I'm thinking of along the harbour side and that sort of thing. You know, the, the food pop ups there, um, trying to kind of inspire youngsters as well to. Uh, to aspire to kind of create their own business and develop there. I've, we've done a lot of work with some local schools on kind of coming into the engine shed where we're based and and learning about kind of how how you can build your own business, how you can build it about around your own ideas and your own skills and grow it from there. So um, that's from a very sort of basic entry level perspective. Mm. I think there's, there's a lot going on in uh, education as well, which will inspire people to, mm. to grow businesses in the city. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and have you had much direct contact with the council? Is it something which kind of you guys have to do um, on a daily basis? A lot of our business? stuff is kind of is comes through um 
set the incubator set squared. Mm. But obviously, we're very aware of kind of the developments going on in the enterprise quarter as well, and and how that is is trying to um, grow the, the base, um startup and the tech industry as well. So so yeah, we're certainly abreast of kind of everything that's going on, on in that development and the transport developments that are increasing as well. Yeah. So you mentioned those slightly, I guess not policies which don't directly implicate you in terms yeah. of they're not business rates and things like that. Yeah. Those transport and wider, and obviously we've got the arena and yeah, all yeah. of that <laughs> that Ferrari which is mm. going on. How important is it for Bristol to be seen as a ideal place to set up a business or to be a real destination for people? Yeah, I think you mentioned the the arena and sometimes it feels like that is that the panacea to a lot of things. If we have an arena, do we then compete on other levels with, you know, with Cardiff just over the bridge? And we don't have those huge events that drive people into the city by not having the arena. So therefore we're kind of, we're, we have a, a much more, I think we have a wider range of things going on. Like we have much more cultural, you know, there's a lot of cultural things, there's events and festivals and that sort of thing that are so, kind of smaller scale, but across a real range. So I think that's a real driver into the city as well um, with the very fact that we haven't developed that. But, you know, things like with with Channel 4 being on the kind of on that short list and is that going to become, will we will there be like a sort of media quarter developing if we do get that? You know, if, if the arena isn't built in the city, um, something else surely will eventually be developed there. And I think that's really important to see that there's progress being made and there's a reason to drive people in. Certainly from a from startup moving up into a scale up perspective, I know there's kind of there is work beginning to be kind of it's it's more in the culture now that, that scale ups need to be addressed in the city and putting an infrastructure to enable that. So the right sized office, the right amount of facilities, again, the recruitment of the right talent. So I think, again, Bristol's gearing up to become a, a scale up destination, not just a startup destination. That's really powerful for our economy as well. And how does Bristol go about becoming that scale-up destination? You mentioned office space and skills. Yes, I think Bristol is so good at adapting as well and like and, and taking ideas on and taking them to heart as well. And I think moving away from some of the kind of much more established infrastructure of like the corporate offices and, and that sort of thing, reduce business rates for scale-ups, that sort of thing, you know, easier infrastructure and connectivity, all of that investment will naturally then start to encourage that size business to then to you know to think of Bristol as a as a destination for them yeah and do you think the council is receptive to that because obviously much of it will be led by um you know private business and and all of the ethos which come comes with that but the council does have a role to play in terms of making sure that Bristol is a kind of appropriate place for scale ups. Yeah, I think. I mean, the council with everything, you know, with, with the, obviously with everything that they have to do, I think um, they could benefit from um, gleaning information from those that are on the ground. And I think if, if they can absorb what is needed and then enable that, like I say, you know, reduce business rates for you know for people moving out from incubators into um, technically what's their first kind of office outside of, of, of an incubator, that sort of thing. So um, understanding that those are the needs and kind of reducing the barriers for, for that, um, for people that are trying to move out from under those umbrellas, you know, it, is something that, that could really be appropriate. But I think, mate, yeah, as I say, listening to, to what's needed from, from the ground, I think is really important because the count, you know, they haven't got, they, they can't put the infrastructure in place to enable that, you know, they need to facilitate that, you know, increased connectivity and stuff, making more of that possible uh, means more people will take advantage of it. And Anthony, if I can come over to you, how do you feel about Bristol's offering to small businesses and scale-ups? Well, it's got very much better over 
you know, over the last uh, few years. Uh, I mean, when we came into a control in Bristol City Council, it had been 30 years of, 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 of the same sort of stuff. And one of the things that we put um, right at the heart of what we're doing was to make Bristol open for business, not just with uh, in terms of, of burgeoning business coming in, but about the attractiveness of Bristol as somewhere that people will want to live and therefore start businesses and bring up their kids and... and uh, and enjoy the city as, as part of the overall package. I mean, we wanted to make Bristol that sort of place that people would want to do these sorts of things. And we set up, I mean, the engine shed and all the rest of those sorts of things were to, was, were to try and improve the natural sort of relationships that were occurring with students staying on in Bristol. We have a very, very high uh, rate of, of, of students staying in Bristol after their, after their studies. And uh, we wanted to try and make those those links and those opportunities, and we, we physically put it together at the energy shed and working with working with business generally. We we were able to make those sorts of links and get those behind it. I mean, as a as a as an architect, as someone who spent my entire life as an architect, I was aware that that developers were very very unhappy about coming to Bristol. It was extremely difficult. To get things going and to and to make in, things work. In what work. way? Why were they unhappy at that they had, time? Uh, there was a very very obstructive uh, planning uh, background. It was you know just everything was very very complicated. I mean, uh, Emily mm. referred to the festivals and 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 uh, the street parties and all the rest. We one of the things we did as part of this attractiveness, we put together a package which was a one you know a one sheet of paper which allowed people to actually get these things going in one place. And before it had been several, uh, you know, several um, different places you need to go to to set all these things up. And it was actually rather inconvenient. And, and we, were, we were, I think it may have dropped back a bit, but we were certainly the street party and festival capital of Britain. And, uh, we, you know, we, that was all part of the plan. We needed to make the environment right for people to want to come and, and do business here, live here uh, and, and, and grow. I don't think we got uh, far enough along um, in terms of, of talking about the next stage, which Emma's refer, Emily's referred to about about mo- moving up. I think that was something that we were we were beginning to get into, and I'm very pleased that some of that's that some of that's happening. But it is possible you know, for council to be much more involved. The, the con- connectivity, for example, is very much something that the council uh, actually. Um, put in place. I mean, the uh, 4G originally, mm. which Barbara Jank was, you know, champion and was biting people's legs off about. Um, that was that was very much a part of our administration. And now 5G, of course, is is yeah. the next stage up, which is very much uh, is is so important in driving this forward. We've mm. got to have the environment mm. there to, to make it work. And Emily, you mentioned. Um the skills, potential skills shortage in, I guess it's not just the Southwest, it's kind of England and the UK as a whole. Yeah. Bristol is often portrayed as a city which is divided. You know, you've got the, I guess, the wealthy startups and, and people coming forward and opening businesses, but then you've got, you know, the poorer areas where there aren't seen to be as many opportunities for young people coming up, perhaps because they haven't come from or they haven't been given the right educational tools to be able to go into a small business or start up their own business. Do you think that divide is increasing or are there are there people hoping to bridge that gap? Are there measures in place to try and close that? I do think there are measures in place. There probably aren't enough to ever counteract it as much as any as anyone would like. And I think there should be onus on kind of 
people that have taken advantage of Bristol for, like you say, from the private sector to, to, to reinvest some of that skill back into, as I mentioned before, doing some sort of outreach to schools, um, coding club, digi local club. And I'm talking about from a tech point of view as well, but um, just as aspiring um, people to understand that, you know, with what is available now, anyone can start a business from their, you know, f- from using their phone almost, you know, if, if you have an idea that you want to, to develop, then then people can be inspired to do that. Um, so I would say kind of the, the tools are more available, but maybe the incentive isn't, the, or the kind of the the belief isn't there, maybe in, in some kind of, uh, in, in some areas, I think that kind of ingrained idea that that isn't what we do, you know, we don't start our own businesses, you know, we, we none of this is meant to sound negative, but you know, if, if people don't feel that it's their right to have their own business or it sounds like it's something that posh people do or, you know it, it has it, there are barriers to it then then that's more it, it's a mentality that has to be kind of um uh addressed really and and, and i think any 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 kind of innovation that could in that can do that um and that can get to, to people very early early stage in school and make them understand that you know a business just comes from their head it comes from their idea and the tools are there to do it and have the belief that you can do it i think that's really key so i think a lot of it is about mentality so the more that can be done um to address that then then hopefully the the smaller that gap gets yeah mm. now, anthony you were nodding at oh absolutely i mean i i i i, I uh, grew up in a, in a in a shared house. Uh, we only had two books in the house, which were my father's um, uh, Sunday school uh, prizes. Uh, and uh, but in in my household, the brakes weren't off. I still meet uh, people today, young people, and particularly I have to say, young women, who are basically told this is not for you. You know, this is not your thing. This is not what we do. It, it's it's. Much of, of of getting people to take those opportunities is simply to take the brakes off. It's simply to it's it's a cultural thing, and culture I mean in every sense of the word. It, it's it, it's telling people or, or giving people the opportunity to break out of that enclosure which says you can't do this. And and I I honestly believe that 90% of the people in this country can do 90% of the things in this country if only they were allowed to get on with it and and, and believe in themselves. And much of education, I, I know many teachers, much of education is, is about getting that self-belief, mm. taking the brakes off, mm. making people really believe in themselves and that there is there are no objections. And then the next stage is to just making that bit easier to get, from that point to something rather yeah, higher yeah. and picking up that phone mm. and playing with yeah. it and seeing now I can do this on this, maybe I can go and yeah. do something else. Yeah. That That's that's the trick. Mm. Now, Emily, Anthony mentioned there um, women in business and, of course, you're a woman working in the tech business and, you know, there's been a huge national push towards getting women into STEM subjects and businesses as a whole. Is it difficult to be a woman in tech? Um well, I'm always that patronising. I don't want to give away. No, it's fine. I don't want to give away, uh, away my age, but um, no, no, with four it's decades fine. behind me, I've got the confidence of age as, as well. I mm-hmm. guess. So I, I don't know whether if I spoke to my twenty-year-old self, I think I would have had a very different reaction to how I, I deal with business now, and that's that really needs addressing because, as Anthony mentioned, it's it's about that culture and feeling like well, that's not what's for me, so I will do something else. And I came into tech from a, a very kind of um, circuitous route. Yeah, I, I still think there is a, there is a huge gap. We, we've we uh, interviewed for four different positions recently and not a single applicant was female. 
which is really disappointing. That is disappointing. Yeah. Especially disappointing, when you yeah. think of Bristol as quite in um, a city where opportunity, it shouldn't matter about your gender. Absolutely, yeah. But yeah. clearly, actually on the ground, something there is still a disconnect. Yeah, absolutely. So we felt what we'd done, you know, we, we would have inter- interviewed anyone that was that was capable of doing the role, but those applicants weren't there. So then the, the problem, as we've mentioned, it is then further back. It's more ingrained back in the culture of why people don't apply for those jobs. And if they don't apply, it's because they feel they don't have the skills. Then we've, we, you know, we've lost a really productive part of, of the workforce. And so that there is still um, a huge amount to be, to be done. So therefore, women that are entering tech industries probably have that confidence already. So I still feel we're missing out on a huge tranche of capable people that's, that maybe don't have the mindset that they have that they should have trained in that role and they're capable of that. And, and that is all again about confidence and culture. So yeah, there are still huge issues to address. Yeah. And I know um, taking, if you look in terms of kind of party politics and party selections, quite a few, a number of parties are doing all female shortlists when you come to the private sector, would there ever be a case for having an all-female interviewee selection process? Is that something which you think is fair or is it not justifiable? Um, I believe there's definitely an, an element of fairness. I, w- I was on a panel last week and, and they deliberately wanted you know, two, two female and two, and two male uh, members and that was a very proactive way of doing it and sometimes it feel a bit forced and you can yourself feel a bit frustrated like am I just on here because I I am a woman but then we've got to take that you know if that's if that's the movement at the moment then let's take that so that you know in another hundred years time we're not having to celebrate you know another hundred years of suffrage that have been so hard fought for this should be this should be the epoch where things change and you know hopefully when my daughter's older it won't even be an issue that um, you know things have to be proactively um, balanced but I think you know to to set the scales. I think it's it's fair enough to have you know to have all women shortlist sometimes, and and you know and it's proved as well. Boards with with a higher female proportion are exponentially more productive as well. You know uh, investments in women led companies. Uh, they might not be the big unicorn style startup, but they're often kind of much more um, sustainable, much more productive. They produce more revenue early on, that sort of thing. So kind of the, you know there's a lot of there's a lot to be said about kind of of the power of women in business. And um, yeah, if if we're in an era where it has to be promoted more to to make it balanced, then then I'm fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> now, of course, a large um, I don't want to say issue, but a something that which women have to think about is is maternity if they want to have children yeah. of course not everyone wants to have children mm-hmm. but if you do want to start a family you have to take that career break and not just in Bristol but across the UK as a whole there have been some issues with certain companies and the way that they treat women before both before and after they come back from having children have you ever experienced anything like that in your professional career or or know of people who have Um, I certainly know of people that have I mean to be honest from our point of view when I had um had my last child we decided to set up our own business to basically negate all those 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 problems we so if we we built our own business we could build it around our family life and and that was a a challenge that my husband and I took on and, and that's what what we have done and that comes with its own challenges but at least you know we decided to take ourselves out of that issue of trying to work you know work around um, childcare. Um, we basically do the childcare as part of our, um, you know, day-to-day lives, basically. So I haven't experienced it myself. I do know others that have. I think that discrimination, I hope, is becoming less of, of, of the norm now. I think companies really wise up to the fact that there is a hugely talented workforce of well-trained females that have had a career break 
um, that have got their skills. And I tell you what, a woman coming back from maternity leave is like a woman boosted. She's like, <laughs> it's like the ability to kind of multitask, crisis management, budget, uh, yeah. you know, do everything. It's like, it's, you know, it, it's an absolute boost to your mental facilities, basically, you know, by the time you've got kids into school and then you manage, I, sometimes I feel like I've done a whole day's work before I even get to a meeting by, you know, doing some of the childcare. So I think, I think companies have really wised up to that idea that there is this really hugely talented workforce all that need to to release that is to give that flexibility so i've heard of schemes where there's like um, a hundred day workforce where you work a hundred days over 365 so you can you can balance that over holiday school holidays and that sort of thing so so the companies are gaining from your skills you're on projects that kind of um that other people are on as well so you're kind of not holding all the balls but you're 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 bringing your skills back into, uh, you know, into, into law, into finance, into anything you can think of, really, any industry. So I know there are issues, obviously, where shift work can't be can't be flexible, can it? You know, that that's that's a whole other situation. But certainly enabling women to work flexibly is, is a fantastic. And there, there are lots more schemes coming up that enable that, you know, the um, job shares, two day week, two and a half day weeks. In fact, we've just launched an app ourselves that enables people to work flex, put their skills into a local network and then just be booked in the hours that they're available. That's And that grew out of conversations at the school gates where people have got skills, but they want to use them at the time that they are free and not compromise on, on, on their hours as well. So I think there's definitely a movement where people are looking to find work that fits into their lifestyle as well. And the more companies that that get wise to the fact that that workforce is there and offer those available hours that they can only benefit from that. Yeah. And of course in Bristol we're very fortunate because we have a number of um, associations and companies which are looking to promote equal working in terms mm. of the gender pay gap yeah. and also in terms of, and that's obviously not just in financial gap between women being paid the same rate of pay as men which is obviously illegal mm. but that you know that time that you have to take out for when you have if you decide to have children um do you think bristol can be a real leader in equal working for women um i can't see any i can't see any why, any reason why not i don't see why you wouldn't chat on the, the i literally cannot think of a reason why you wouldn't employ skilled productive competent capable women unless you're so kind of entrenched in a in a, in an old style of work nine to five whoever's left at their desk the longest is the best work I mean all that stuff so some companies might still operate like that but you know I feel like in the circles that I move in we don't but yeah I can't say that they, they don't all but I think I cannot I can't think of one reason why you wouldn't progress and, and have that change both as I say from you know, as you mentioned from what is actually illegal um, to actually what's what's the most productive for your company you know so it's um it's people work smart when they can work well uh, Emily I couldn't have a business leader come in today and not mention the B word Brexit. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think in terms of your company specifically, and obviously you can't speak for all SMEs in Bristol, but your feeling, you know, in your circles that you're moving in, what's the feeling about Brexit and its impact on Bristol? Is it a opportunity or is it a risk? For starters, it feels like a bit of stasis, really. It's sort of like, you know, it, it, things have been on hold and and no one knows knows the answer at, at the moment and how, how it's going to, to work out. Um, I think from our point of view, our onus is, is, is kind of, it's, it's hugely just, you know, there's nothing, nothing, but from my perspective, there's nothing but disappointment that, that, that it was Brexit, but we got to make it work for us if that's if that's what we're, we're left with. So, um, 
we're about kind of homegrown talent and kind of encouraging local local skills and local infrastructure to benefit Bristol. And it's almost as though we'll deal with Brexit when we know what's actually happened as a result. So it's like, so we can't we can't predict now what's going to happen with the trade trade deals and everything. So let's just let's concentrate on what we are in control of. And then put ourselves in a strong position to deal with whatever, you know, whatever the final <laughs> outcome is. Yeah, of course, mm. because there is so little concrete information about what may or may not happen. Absolutely. Next yeah. year. I mean, yeah. is there anything which you're doing to, is it, I don't know, any kind of contingency plans or, or anything to secure the business? Yeah, I mean, as I say, we don't, we, um, I suppose what I mentioned earlier about homegrown talent, we don't outsource anything that we do. All our, all our services are provided in-house. So, you know, the idea of um, outsourcing uh, development to European countries, which is obviously what a lot of startups do do rely on, uh, we're kind of trying to mitigate against that because it, it makes sense to us to have, to have, as I say, to have homegrown talent that we've recruited from Bristol and the or recruiting to Bristol. From our perspective, that's 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 the position we're putting ourselves in. Anthony, if I can throw Brexit over to you, so to speak, from a councillor perspective, opportunity or risk? Well, there's got to be opportunity in everything. Uh, I would uh, really prefer that we were not in this situation. I think it's uh, I think it's a bad place to be, and certainly the last two years and the next two years are going to be a very, very bad place to be, um, and we'll see what comes out of that. I mean, all the signs are that, that we weren't told the truth and that things are going to be pretty bleak. Um, some of the uh, furore caused by um, Theresa May's thing about the, uh, uh, the Brexit uh, uh, bonanza which is, you know, trying to rewrite history about what was on the battle bus. I mean, that, that is just absurd. I mean, most people with any common sense know that that's not going to happen. It, it's And it's now being reinforced by people that have actually got the figures at their fingertips and know what's going on. So we're, we're learning about this. But everything, and I, I very much take y- y- your point, Emily, everything must be an opportunity. We can't whinge about things. I deeply regret we are where we are. I think I think the people of this country have made a wrong choice, and I'm very sorry about that. But the fact is that where we are is where we've got to really start from in terms of doing something else. It's essential, to my mind, that we keep the maximum links we possibly can with Europe, not just because of, of trade, which seems to be all that the conversation seems to be about these days. Europe, remember, started off because of cultural links and because of, of, of concerns about peace and, and, and trying to work together because we were one sort of basic ethnic, cultural family. Uh, now, much of that has changed in the last, you know, 40, 50 years, uh, that this has all been going on. And, but I think in many respects, it's reinforced and coalesced that, that, um, that, that great plan. And although we've got some countries which are going off at a tangent, uh, rather worryingly recently, the EU is still one organisation which can actually uh, coalesce around an ambition and that's something which I, I really, really hope that, that, that Britain does not lose, that we are a part of that cultural plan. I think our motives and our uh, uh, ambitions are very much the same as much of what's going on in Europe. And if we are torn from that relationship, I fear what we might be forced into as, 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 as the only other available option. And that worries me a lot. So I think it's kind of widely agreed that there will be a cost to Brexit for the government in the UK. Do you think that that will impact on local government funding, which of course the majority of which does come from central government? Well, we are going to be poorer. 
Mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, I, I've not heard anybody say that we're not going to be poorer. There is the possibility that in 10 years' time, um, if we start trading more with countries that we've not traded so much with in the past, that we might be uh, richer in 10 years' time or, or maybe getting back to where we are now. But the fact is, uh, uh, it, it only you can only see what's happened since the Brexit vote. Britain has gone down from being the most, uh, you know, economically uh, vibrant uh, country in Europe to, you know, fourth, fifth, or sixth, depending on how you how you pace it. And that's that that is not good for uh, the way funding is is at the moment driven out to local authorities. Now we know that Bristol. Uh, was one of the uh, it was one of the trial things, and more and more local authorities being cut off from central government because we're now more dependent on business rates, and we're meant to be more autonomous. We have Wecker, you know, we, we, all these mayors have been popping up all over the place. Uh, we we have the the West of England combined authority, which is only something that they could put a mayor in top of because we had a West of England uh, authority before then, which worked actually worked. I mean, in two thousand and ten, when I was when I was on it. It worked extremely well. Uh, one of the best things that was done in the area, to be perfectly honest, why we needed to impose a mayor on it uh, is, is, is beyond me. But the, the answer is because government wants to keep control in a different way. It's no longer providing the money through, the, through council tax. In fact, in Bristol, it's taking money away from us because the money that used to be collected from business rates for student accommodation... You know, 10 million quid plus a year. Think what we could do with 10 million pounds a year in Bristol. All of that was uh, shuffled around in Westminster and given back to us in a different way as part of our part of our grant. All of that's gone. We, 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 we now have to provide the services to 10, 11% of our population with no money. Mm. Um, so government is trying to... Uh, cut loose from uh, from local authorities, but through the mayoral system, it's trying to keep a tight rein. Uh, mayors are single people that government can tickle under the chin and, and sort of uh, and and big up and uh, can therefore control. That was not the case with local authorities. Certainly, wasn't the case with the administration I served in. We we were very very rigorously with government, and uh, we, we didn't expect. Too many favours. I think government is now trying to run the cities through the mayoral system, and that bothers me a lot. And so, before um, Claire Campion Smith stood down um, from the council, she, I know, tried to bring in a debate regarding or hoping to get support from the chamber to lobby central government for a final vote um, before Brexit comes through. Obviously, now, unfortunately, that debate didn't take place. There wasn't time for it, I think, if I can remember, because it was a silver motion. Yes, it was rather conveniently felt not to be, <laughs> not to be uh, there to be time. Yes. Is, there, is that something that, that the Lib Dem party will consider bringing forward again? Because I know other core cities have, have had such votes yeah. and um, I think the, the kind of the feeling is if Bristol were to add its voice to all of those other voices, then perhaps something might be achieved in Westminster. Do, do you know, the, the great joke about, about Brexit is that uh, nobody actually knew what the vote was when Mrs May said Brexit means Brexit. You know, actually, what did, what did Brexit mean Brexit mean? Yeah. Um, and she tried to write her own terms of what it meant. It meant uh, economic control, you know, autonomy, as it were. It meant a control on our immigration process, which has been proved to be something which is we, we actually really, really don't want to do. And the third one is that we have, within this country, 
the ability to make our own decisions rather than have to go into Europe and be told what to do. And the very first chance that they get for Westminster and this wonderful democratic system, which is the envy of the world, has to uh, vote on Brexit, it's not allowed. And that is, it is such a cynical uh, response to what's come out of Brexit that I, I weep, honestly. It is just awful to think that, that that is something that they don't trust their own backbenchers, they don't trust half the Labour Party. You know, they, they just because it's not going to go the way they want to do it, then they're not going to have that. Then they're going to stonewall that ability for d democratically elected uh, representatives to make their point. It happens in Bristol all the time. I mean, we're, we're, councillors are not given the opportunity to say at the right time uh, and contribute to the development of, of an improvement of, of policy. But to, to, to hear it done in Westminster in the same breath almost as being told that that was one of the three things that people wanted is monstrous. To stick with you, Anthony, and to move on to our second topic, apologies, Emily, you will be coming back in soon. Just to introduce it, a vague, very vague outline, which I'm sure you will kindly embellish for us. So you've brought with you a plan which the Lib Dems floated around two years ago and which was taken to the core cities and gained lots of support and positive noises were made. But as of yet, nothing has much happened with it. And that plan is in essence for the council to work with big supermarket chains to form agreements to reduce food waste and improve their or sorry, reduce their environmental impact on the city. Now, can you flesh that out a little bit for sure. me? It started off, uh, actually, it started off on my laptop. I uh, contacted all, in fact, actually the big six. I, I contacted them and, and had some conversations with the, uh, with the big supermarkets about what they were doing and how that was working in Bristol and how we could make it better for both of us. I mean, that's the, that's the key. The word is compact, I think. It's an arrangement between that benefits both parties to, to any agreement. I then, th this was taking a lot of my time, and I at the same time I was also uh, sorting out how we could recover and redistribute food at the end of a, a supermarket's day, and I managed to put a plan in place as well in, in my ward and surrounding wards uh, to get that done as well. And all of this was happening at the same time, and it suddenly dawned on me that I was chairing the Neighbourhood Scrutiny Committee and why not get the officers to try and do some of this legwork for me? And so we brought it into the Neighbourhood Scrutiny uh, Forum. We actually talked about how we might make this work. I had asked all of the six supermarkets ten questions uh, uh, around in all those things that you mentioned, including packaging, including the the inability of us in, this, in, in most of the southwest to be able to deal with certain types of plastics and various other uh, very, very difficult materials. The, the other thing you didn't mention was distribution, how uh, uh, food is actually locally, uh, or very often not locally, uh, provisioned, brought into supermarkets, which now basically supermarkets have their shelves are more or less all the storage they've got. Once the shelves are used up, they have to get another lorry in and fill the shelves up. There's, there's, there's no sort of backup in, in a lot of, a lot of uh, supermarkets these days. And the, uh, we then expanded that to eight, the eight big supermarket chains, and we got up to 25 questions. We asked all of them, and all of them did respond to our 25 questions. Uh, we were able to build up a very, very comprehensive dossier, and we actually had two of the people in each end of the spectrum, as it were, to talk to us about what they were doing. The, the, the interesting thing through all of that process 
was that there's a tremendous willingness amongst the supermarkets to do this. The supermarkets actually see this as a way of saving money, of improving their relationship with their customers and, and doing good. I mean, this is actually, is, it's, it's the bottom line, apart from any, any high, level, high level aspirations. So what specifically were you asking them to do? Right. We were, we were going to set out a, a, a set of criteria and, and this, is, this is what has stalled since we, we, got, we got to this stage. A set of criteria around food packaging, food waste, recycling and distribution. And we were looking at having six things that, that, that we as Bristol would say uh, if you can achieve those things satisfactorily, we will give you an accreditation. I mean, we use the term kite mark, which is a bit old fashioned. But you know, we were actually saying, we, we will, if you're doing well, we're more than happy to say how very pleased we are that you're doing this and you can use that as, uh, as, as part of your marketing and uh, improving you know, the high level uh, openness of, of your offer. You can really make that point to your customers. So the thing that they gain from it is brand, you know, Very recognition much. And, and positive we, We've heard about, about this from Emily earlier. There is that mood out there. There is that belief in Bristol that this is what we should be doing. And the interesting thing, there's a, it, there is the belief within the supermarkets that mm. you should be doing this. They think this is the right thing to do. Um, they want to cooperate more between themselves and certainly things like distribution and, and you know, the, the places where they drive in and drive out. They want that to be much more, uh, much more used. They want to be looking at, and they are looking at, using different fuels for their, for their distribution lorries, which are obviously is fundamental to the way we do the clean air zone in Bristol. I mean, much, much of this traffic is vehicles, enormous vehicles in some cases, coming into small places. And some of the distribution vehicles are getting jammed up in my ward and other wards because, you know, they just can't, the, the streets just mm. can't cope with a sort of increased and larger scale distribution. So this is a problem we have to solve. And the great thing about it is it's a sort of an open door. There's a willingness to do this. Where it's been absolutely completely clobbered is the inability of Bristol City Council to, to get behind this. We, I, 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 we've had about three or four meetings with officers trying to push this forward. And you know, we lost one of the executive members uh, along the way. And since then, it's been impossible. And two of the officers, three of the officers have gone. I mean, this is very, it's very common now in Bristol. We don't, you know, if someone's been there for six months, we almost think they're a veteran. It's, it's, it, we just don't have this wherewithal anymore. And I, I've been trying to drive it personally, and that isn't enough. It needs some sort of oomph behind it. And we're not getting it. So, Emily, when I know that's the first time that you've heard about this scheme, but what are your thoughts as a business person? Well, I think absolutely. I mean, supermarkets, you know, they have their, their, their bottom line. So maybe 10 years ago, they wouldn't have been um, receptive to, to everything that Anthony has, has discussed. And, and But actually now... They have a bottom line, but they're also, you know, they are driven by consumer demand. And if consumer demand, thankfully, is now requiring less packaging, less waste, you know, that's what people want to see. And that's what people, that is generally, certainly since kind of, um, the, the, you know, the, the blue, was it Blue Planet? Mm. And the, yeah, and the, and, you know, the plus, people saw it with their eyes. And this is actually what's happening. This is, this is what leaves the supermarket and, and leaves our house and cause. So I think there is certainly a drive from the consumer that they want to see the supermarkets 
reacting to that and therefore the supermarkets know they're in a good position to do something that gives them accreditation or a kite mark to say this is what we've done we've reduced our carbon footprint by x amount we've reduced packaging by x amount but as i said yeah now it's consumer driven then consumers will understand why packaging is reduced or why you know things aren't as plush as they used used to look it's about you know eating food that you know all the stuff that used to be kind of literally thrown yeah. away because it didn't look right. You know, sure. the whole, you know, strawberries that were out the wrong size, bananas that weren't bent in the right way, all that sort of thing. Certainly, I think, as I say, you know, that, that movement that consumers understand. I think we will look back and think what a, this was an era of uh, unbelievable waste and consumption. And, you know, we have to address that. And so I think both consumer and business prov- combining to achieve that is 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 mm. really powerful, yeah. But you yeah. know, Bristol has a bottom line as well. Yeah. I mean, why should it be that we, as a city council, who are out there to provide service to our taxpayers, why should we be the people that have to pick up the bill all the time because somebody else decides to trade in a particular way? Why should we put up with that pollution? Why should we, why should we have to cope with the intractable problem of getting rid of dark plastic? Which actually, is, there's nowhere in the southwest. There's only, no. I think, one or two places in in this country that do that. Why should we accept something which could be overcome? Um, simply to say, oh well, that's what you do. Okay, we'll chuck it at us then, and we'll sort it out, and we'll pay for it. You know, our taxpayers will pay for getting rid of the stuff that that you decide to trade with. That doesn't seem to me to be a conversation. It's not. It's not a relationship you would have within your family. And why should you have that sort of relationship w- w- between a uh, in a city? We've all got money problems. We've all mm. got to work together to try and make it better for all of us. Why are we not doing this? It, it's just common sense to me. I, I get distraught sometimes that people can't see this, and particularly when the people that seem to be more interested perhaps in doing this are the supermarkets are the people that are actually creating this stuff they want to help and we don't seem to want to shake their hands the idea that you could then you know even if it was like i mean black plastic is an absolute classic you know it's supposed to be it's supposed to be the you know the classier bit of joint that you pick up you know something that's wrapped in black plastic for some reason is is the the better end of what they're selling i wish somebody explained that to me exactly yes it's an absolute (laughs) anomaly so why don't you know the idea that supermarkets might be receptive to testing something different therefore you know consumers then buy that their bottom line isn't affected and then the bristol city bottom line is, is not picking up that um, of, that, of course. that bill as well. I mean, it's, I, I can't see, you know, it's when you explain an idea like that, it's like, well, why don't those bits fall together? But, you know, it, it's it's the, the mechanics behind it that need that. I mean, it's it, like you mentioned Blue Planet and there's so much in the media at the moment about, you know, using reusable bottles and, you know, plastic straws. Really reducing, and, yeah, 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 and getting yeah. rid of plastic straws and using alternatives. And I say that knowing full well that I've given you some water in plastic cups, which is very naughty. Um, but is it, how much do you think it actually impacts on people day to day? I mean, is it a case of people saying, oh, of course we want to ditch plastic and get rid of it, but actually when they go to the supermarket, they still have the same old consumer habits. I mean, do you think there really has been a shift or are we just shouting a bit louder about it? I think that there is a mental shift, but also then you go into the reality of day to day and people are busy and they just want to pick up what's conven- what's convenient, basically. So there's not a whole scale movement to, you know, to go and pick things from, you know, big community bins, you know, the big food, you know, where you can kind of take your own packaging and mm-hmm. fill that. So that's kind of more the most sort of extreme end of that. But I think if it could be easily integrated into the convenience lifestyle, you know, where packaging isn't always, people can pick it up in a different, so I don't think that would naturally then reduce 
it will reduce that packaging, but it won't inconvenience people who want that convenient lifestyle of picking stuff up because that is who we are. You know, people have busy lifestyles they want to pick mm. up. So a certain percentage will change their um, consumer habits, but a large percentage won't. So if you can change what they are doing in their in their convenience, then then I think you can, you know, you can affect things that way. Yeah. So it could be business led. Yeah, it could be business led, okay. I think. Yeah. But, and if but also we're all in this together. I mean, it, it, it didn't take very long and there certainly were riots on the streets when people started charging when we started charging for for uh, carrier bags yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know and the one that really surprised me was, was smoking i mean after saying enough enough already uh smoking in in public places just sort of stopped mm. and it, there wasn't you know you know there's been a, there's been a, a knock on effect for pubs i understand that but it wasn't anything like the amount of uh, reaction to that as i expected and i think if people i mean you mentioned claire earlier claire of course before she wasn't allowed to bring that motion about uh, uh, about brexit had actually managed to get uh, the the chamber to agree to recyclable cups in in uh, in coffee shops mm. and so and that's something which i was amazed how that's taken up i mean mm. We, we've, we've had Boston tea parties now going to be doing that. And I think once one of those big chains starts, then the others will feel obliged to. And they, they could have done that at any time that those companies, well, couldn't they, they? They could have done that at well, any time. I they think could it have begun Claire's that. So it to takes, push it. Yeah. it takes that initiative to push it. And it takes yeah. that initiative to have come from consumer demand. And it has that knock on effect. So, yeah, those businesses could have run with recycling cups and, plus, and hmm. cardboard stores from. The moment they began. It's a but nudge, yeah. isn't it? It's you a nudge. Need exactly. nudge. You need that nudge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Anthony, when you spoke about your scheme that you've been talking to the supermarkets about, I was quite surprised as to how receptive they were because I just automatically assumed that it would cost them more money to be making this switch. And, you know, as we've already said, a lot of businesses, well, how they are run depends upon their bottom line and their profit figures. So, why do you think they are receptive and will it cost them more money? Ultimately, because they are business people and, and they see the advantage of, of, of making change to help with their bottom line. They're, they're, they're trying to be more creative. I mean, most of the people I spoke to were sort of saying, yeah, we thought about that. And I said, well, that's good to hear, but how, how far have you taken it? What are you doing about it? And some of them were actually doing very serious things about it. I mean, I was um, uh, very surprised to find, and I won't say who it is, but one of the major chains... Um, is uh, it, it picked up the fact that somebody managed to get their lawnmower to go around the uh, the garden uh, running on liquid air, which th- th- had been frozen with antifreeze, and this was you know all Heath Robinson and this chap was mowing his lawn with this. And uh, my my, I said, so what are you doing about that? Uh, well, we're, we're looking at you know uh, upscaling it. I said, well, how well has that gone? Oh, we've got an Arctic at the moment that's going that way. They've got an articulated lorry running on air. You know, I mean, that's that's too simplistic. I realise you need fuel to get it to that stage, blah, 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 blah. But the fact is that they are, they believe that they have to get cleverer because their their, their costs are escalating and they've got to find better ways of doing it. And ultimately, I think that's going to involve cooperation. And we've already seen two, two supermarkets now coming mm-hmm. together to try and, and that's, most of that's backroom stuff. Most of that's trying to get their distribution systems and, and their sourcing systems uh, working rather better. And I, I, I don't want there to be one supermarket chain left in this country. I really don't. But uh, I quite like it that there weren't uh, eight supermarkets up White Ladies Road because everybody needs to be there just to show mm. uh, their top banner. I mean, that, that seems to be senseless. 
Um, but somewhere between those two extremes, I'm sure we can find a better way of having an offer on, on the high street that, and, and, and opportunities, but, but, but real creative ways of trying to, to reduce the footprint. I just don't mean the carbon footprint. Yeah. I mean the general footprint that some of these uh, large businesses make. And Bristol ends up by picking up the tab. For this, for this footprint, we, 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 you know, so much Bristolians in terms of what they're breathing and how much they're not allowed to walk across the street because there's another wagon coming down it, to to actually trying to decide how they're going to productively get rid of the waste that comes out of supermarkets. We've got to find a solution to this, and the only way to do it is to cooperate. And the you're confident, sorry. sorry, and just you're confident that when you were speaking to the supermarkets that when they were saying, yes, we would like to work with you, that they genuinely meant that and it wasn't a type of appeasement. But I've been around the block a bit. You know, you, you can tell when you're being blathered to. There was some of that. Yes, there was. Um, but there was also quite a lot of people saying, we realise our competitors are doing that. So we've got to be looking at this. That um, we, we know somewhere in Bulgaria has come up with this idea. We're looking at it. I mean, they are... I mean, you'd expect... Uh, business right at the sharp end to be actually being clever about this. I mean, if you're not clever, frankly, you go under. So, uh, and much of their bottom line is about the things we're now talking about. It's the on costs of 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 clearing up pollution, and that's why I believe we should be focusing on making the polluter pay in everything. If somebody causes a problem, they should sort the problem, and ideally, therefore, be less inclined to cause the problem in the first place. It shouldn't be left to be picked up by somebody else. You and me, in fact, all of us in this room, are paying for the fact the supermarkets still choose to do things in a way that's not very helpful. And Emily, sorry, yeah. I, I cut you off there. Apologies no, I mean, I was going to say the opportunity for sort of smart transport, um, integrated transport as well. That I mean, the technology is there to enable things to be, to enable freight to be combined into into single vehicles um, or uh, to from single distribution you know the technology is there it's being developed it's it takes the it takes you know like you say those supermarkets to decide that that is what their priority is 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 to address that and to take advantage of that so it's 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 not as it's not as all i mean you know the technology is there and they can take advantage of that um to address those issues early Mm -hmm. on without it being a huge overhead for them you know it makes them work smarter and it and it if they take advantage of that i think there's yeah that's the sort of thing there's real opportunity for yeah. but, but we're going yeah. backwards too you know i mean we, we did have a system whereby we had trucks coming down the uh, m5 went into avermouth broke down their loads into smaller mm. smaller vehicles and came into bristol i mean that was going for a very long time and it's and and it didn't work very well financially. There, I think a lot of the supermarkets now, I think we've missed the moment, a lot of supermarkets now would be more inclined to do that because it's actually cheaper for them to take mm. smaller trucks into Bristol than it is to, to engage the, the, the larger ones. And to um, we're, we're also, uh, what instead of giving up on that, which is essentially what Bristol has now done, uh, we should have actually been imposing uh, conditions. We have the ability in Bristol to actually create more roads. I mean, I, I know it takes more paperwork, but we could create more roads that are unavailable uh, to trucks over a certain size. We could do that. We could do that tomorrow. Uh, well, uh, after you know, loads and loads of paperwork. Mm-hmm. Um, but that could be done. That would mean that it would require those supermarkets to do things a different way. And I think Bristol's entirely uh, entitled to do that, because it's saying on behalf of our citizens, enough. 
you know, we can't take, we can't absorb this amount of intrusion. So you've got to find another way, guys. If we can't work this out, we're going to start saying you can't go here, here, here and here. And you've got to, you've got to work it out. And Anthony, final quick word on the topic. What hmm. do you do to plan to take this forward? Well, I've, I've now uh, spoken to the uh, mayor about it uh, directly. Um, I've, I've sent a, a, an email to a yet another interim officer who might be prepared to take this forward. But if not, if they're not prepared to do this, then I'm going to take a deep breath and go round to all of those supermarket people. And I'm going to call them in uh, individually and, and move this forward because this has to go forward. And if the council won't get behind it and just can't, can't be bothered, I'll take it forward. Okay, wonderful. Now, I'm going to move us on to our final topic today, which is libraries. Um, so we record on Tuesdays and this morning we've had a library announcement. But just to give our listeners a little kind of potted history of the latest library saga. So last February, um, the Labour administration decided that it wanted to cut 1.4 million from the library's budget. And last summer, the consultation which they ran suggested that 17 of the city's 27 libraries would be closed to make up that shortfall. Now, this angered a lot of very active campaigners from individual groups and also councillors from different parties. And in November, three petitions were presented to full council with a collective number of 12,000 signatures. Now, in that November full council meeting, Marvin Rees said... Well, he announced a stay of execution for the library service, essentially, and said that the council had gained some Department for Culture, Media and Sport funding to carry out a report. Then it went a little bit quiet for a while and that report was done, but we were told we couldn't see it. And, you know, we were all a little bit kind of left in the dark as to what the future would be. Now, today, i.e. Tuesday, we've been told that the 1.4 million of cuts will not be going ahead until 2020, brackets, election year at the earliest, and services will not change currently. So we've got no details as to what the services will look like in the coming years and no detail as to what the future impact might be for generations. But apparently more is going to be revealed in next week's Cabinet Papers. So, Emily, if I can come to you first, tell me about your interaction with the library service is it something which you use personally personally at the moment I don't but if, if you sort the word library for community hub then there's definitely something that I would use there and I certainly feel like the impassioned pleas to maintain the library service is libraries and community I think certainly everything about a community library is ingrained in the community from the groups that use it the people that use it as a meeting place so I think it has rather than just being the act of borrowing a book I think a library from this perspective is this community space that's really valuable to the whole demographic of the community for, 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 for a variety of reasons, social and economical. So yes, absolutely. So that's my concept of a library and how I would envisage this should be the service. It's, it's almost the word sometimes library is a little bit too contained. It's, it's more about, yes, you, you, you know, you can borrow books from there, but actually it's, it's a much wider 
um, offering. And that's, I can imagine, what, what the impassioned pleas to, to save each one was behind behind each that. It's all those different individuals that, that benefit from it. So from from my perspective, that's what I understand from a library. And that is what I would want to see saved. Yeah, that and things have to change. You know, as I say, the, the, it's not just the act of borrowing a book, a library anymore. It is what they offer the community. And you need to balance the overheads of, of having that open and, and it needs to be commercially viable. It needs to be sustainable to as to, to mitigate against all these costs. So that that's my perspective is that you could do more with that more with that body of, of that physical physical room and and physical um, building and that actually it could be uh, even more vibrant and engaging than, than some of them currently are yeah mm. so I think that's yeah that's my perspective now Anthony yeah. if I can throw this over to you you have been deeply involved <laughs> in <have>. the library <laughs> yes and th- this, of- this coming out on this morning is quite a I is, know, and <laughs> so how do you react to this news well this it, latest I'm, I'm news? just going to respond to something Emily said because uh, she used the term community hub and I'm uh, I'm enthusiastic about that the problem is, I'm afraid, Emily, community hub has been used by um, certain people in the administration uh, to mean this is going to be the solution to the library problem. And what I suspect, uh, or not suspect, I know that, that they mean by that, is basically uh, another community building in some areas which have already got loads of community buildings because uh, they used to be the solution to every problem, uh, with just a shelf of books on one corner. That That's really... You know, I, I accept the, the concept of community hub, but it's got to be more than that. Libraries have got to be an opportunity to to um, uh, to get information in in and infuse people. And when we we built three new libraries, in fact, in the administration I was a part of, and one of them actually was expressly there to also provide a double-up facility for um, uh, for a benefit service, for a job, uh, for, for getting people back into work and, and getting people retrained in adult schools and all the rest. That's been cut away. That library is still going to be staying, but that function, that, that multi-use function, which we felt very, very strongly about, particularly, and you know, probably I won't say which library it was, but it, it's, it's an area where that, that facility was, was really needed. And along the way... I've heard a lot of comment from people that really shouldn't have been saying this, which was, let's close this library because it's getting very, uh, very little footfall. These are very often in deprived areas. In fact, as a matter of interest, they're also claim, closing the two libraries, Redland and Westbury, which have the highest footfall. So, you know, there the, the doesn't... Or not, or, as, well, as today's but, announcement would suggest. I was, I, well, not. Well, OK. I was quite surprised uh, when people were talking about closing those areas, th- those libraries in deprived areas, which didn't get the footfall. My answer to that is that's exactly the area that we should be making libraries much more, uh, a much greater contributor to, to, to improving the area. Now, if that means it's a community hub, I accept that. But it also needs to be offering some sort of a service that the local, uh, local people need uh, uh, in terms of a leg up. Uh, in terms of, of closing libraries... I'm afraid in 2015, when Mayor Ferguson uh, went through this process, we also had an announcement that no libraries were going to close after we were told that libraries were going to close. What that actually meant is that libraries were going to open at very funny hours and much reduced hours and all the rest. So until I know what this, what no libraries closing absolutely means, uh, I'm, I'm not going to make a, a massive statement on this. It seems to me to be a step in the right direction. It's only for two years. I'm hopeful that maybe this is a way of... There is talk of modernising, which means that we might might be lifting these libraries and making them a better contributor in the 21st century to what people need from libraries. 
And maybe that's a community hub with, with, with extras. I don't know. But just to say we're not going to close any libraries is not a solution. If that means that we're actually going to end up by uh, converting two-thirds of every library to something else and just having a stack of books on the corner and calling it a library and getting local people to, 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 to try and, and eke out the resources to keep it together, that is not keeping a library open. It's, it's, it needs to be fully networked. It needs to be part of a city-wide system that everybody can access it completely uh, they, and, and be given opportunities to make the best out of the resource those building has. With a very short note that's been issued uh, this morning, I don't see uh, I don't see a lot of evidence of that. I'm willing to be optimistic if this is going to go in the right direction. We'll certainly get behind it and we'll support it. But it needs to be a, a fully fleshed out solution, not just a quick press release. Of course, mm. and you mentioned the fact that we don't know the detail of what it could be and and. It could be any number of things. We yes. could be talking about moving, or there was previous talk about moving a library into a different community hub, such as a health centre or a police station, and combining those community assets, I think was the term used. Or potentially we could go towards a more um, the model which we see in South Gloucestershire, where there aren't any, or there are minimal library staff. And it's I think it's more of like a swipe card entry type thing. So the buildings are open, but you don't, have necessarily the expertise of librarians on hand mm. to help point you in the right direction if you're looking for something specific. So are you suggesting that w the library service needs to stay as it is? No, I, I think I've tried to say that, that it shouldn't. I, I, I welcome the word modernised in, in this press release. Uh, libraries have been, and one of the problems with the last review is that people were still focusing what libraries were. That's not, that's not what this was about. What we're trying to look at is what libraries could be and should be. And I believe, you're, you're absolutely right, they should play a much more embedded role in the community, as indeed they, they used to in the past. Times have moved on. We lose, uh, we lose um, uh, customers for libraries between about five years old and, uh, and between about 25 years old. I mean, there's a great big gap where people just drop out of libraries. Now, some libraries actually have a lot of students and... and, and, and uh, uh, young people uh, doing exams where they need somewhere quiet with a computer, which often they don't have at home, that they can actually, uh, you know, book some time and get on and, and get some work done. And some of that's some of that's working in the libraries that are that are able to cope with that. But but a lot of libraries, let's face it, are very fusty. They are all about books on a shelf, and that's very often not what people want. So if we can combine better resources in libraries, and if that means moving them into places where they can share use, I'm absolutely all for that. If that increases the footfall, apart from anything else, that's a, that's a, that's a much cleverer way uh, to deal with it. But at, at the moment, libraries are not delivering what, uh, what people want, and I, we, we've got to look at how we can improve that. And there's lots of places around the country, but particularly abroad, uh, North America is is very good at this uh, of inspiring uh, people to come into uh, buildings and and use them and uh, we we don't seem to have quite got that right yet. And Emily, if I could come to you and to play devil's advocate here, and I know I'm asking a very leading question, the council is facing 108 million pounds worth of deficit by 2023, and obviously every service is being pulled in every which direction, cuts are being made, you know, to the bone. In light of all of that, 
And when you look at the pressures on adult social care and things like that, should we be putting money into libraries? I mean, they don't save people's lives necessarily. Yeah, I mean, we could say, as we, Anthony, you know, libraries as they are, the status quo, that there are limits on what on what they offer. But you could you can turn that on their head. And we go back to a conversation earlier about inspiring people to come out of their mindset, be inspired to create and to grow. Then libraries could be a place of inspiration for that. So in the quiet times, you put on a, a, a learning lab where people come in and understand about business. Exactly that age, and you mentioned of the age five to 25, if that demographic were coming into a library in whatever term it, you know, whatever title it has, whatever headline it has, and coming in to be inspired, that in itself will save on other resources, save on antisocial, save on all sorts of other things. So therefore you're engaging a community in a different way than we, than current libraries are, but you are reducing the demand on, on other services. Obviously it, it doesn't physically save lives, but who knows, you've got someone training there to become a medic and, you know, create some sort of life-saving technology in the future so yeah it's not an instant cause and effect but if you turn libraries into this kind of inspiring hub you're absolutely right community hubs do have a slightly different community hall type sometimes sort of but to turn a library into into a place of inspiration that that the written word no longer does just as a book you know we have so much we have so many more ways of disseminating information then that should be part of it so yeah so certainly like for like yes library is not going to save lives but if we put in the infrastructure to change lives then therefore the impact of that is massive over the next generation so i, I can just say that, that there are in fact salford and i think leeds i may have got that wrong uh two labor control councils have, have taken exactly that view that they're, they're putting more money into libraries as because it's going to be a way of saving costs of things like social isolation yep. and and well-being and mental health and all the rest Absolutely. they've actually taken that step and decided that this is a physical way that can, yeah. they can deliver that service. And instead of worrying and saying, well, actually, the footfall is, you know, it's low and it's falling, to take that as an opportunity. OK, so there must be all these times that actually it's empty. What can we put in there? Who's available at that time? You know, three o'clock till six o'clock, you get kids in. Ten till two, you, you get the retired population can come in and kind of learn, you know, in, in an environment that they feel comfortable in. So it, it's very much about, like I say, if the footfall isn't there, then use that availability for something mm. else. Don't just keep saying, well, it's low and it's getting lower, so therefore you yeah. shut it. We say, let's take this as an opportunity and turn it around, use this space and pull in the and you know mm. pull in and inspire people that that need that either yeah like learning inspiration or connectivity or like just company you know whatever it is that that can change things and and reduce from other services. The one point four million pound question is how do you make libraries attractive? What is it that you can do to say? Oh, I mean, because I've my local library in St George offers loads of services and things for community groups, but yet still. As we've seen from the council, football is quite low. Yeah, I mean, maybe the the, na- the very name in itself, libraries, is 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 um is in itself is in itself a barrier. I mean, relaunching it, you know, as something new, you know, properly relaunching it as 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 this innovation space. There will be the right, you know, someone can come up with the right words and branding. But maybe you take this as an opportunity instead of just saying, "Well, we'll open them, we'll close," you know, and have this ongoing. Let's say, you know, Bristol Council put a marker in the sand and say. This is what we're doing with our libraries. This is what we're turning into. This we are making this a powerful place for our communities. This is this belongs to you. Feed in ideas of what people want. I mean, the community leaders will know what works and what's needed and where there are spaces. So I, you could turn this into a really powerful opportunity for Bristol to yeah to put a mark in the sand and say, this is what we believe in, and um, this is this is how we manage. This is how we are 
you need to stop using the word library, basically. <laughs> this is what these, <laughs> these places are now. This, this is what they are and they belong to you and this is how it's going to go out at work and be effective. And, you know, businesses are going to come out of it. Groups are going to come out of it. Um, healthier people are going to come out of it. More connected people. More, so, yeah. I think you just need to drop the L word. <laughs> and some are in the wrong place. I mean, you know, as with my architectural background, you know, you'd also expect to say, let's make these more uh, exciting places. Let's, 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 let's make the best of the physicality of them. But you're absolutely right. It ultimately comes down to people and uh, a different approach, and a different sort of concept. And I, I think, you know, we have to move into the 21st century and embrace that. Now, in the, you know, the sense of balance and fairness, let me read out the quote which Marvin put out today. Um, Tuesday. So in the quote which we've been supplied with, it says, thanks to my all Labour administration's responsibility with council taxpayers' money, we have found a way to safeguard funds and use reserves to cover the 1.4 million annual shortfall caused by the former mayor's, George Ferguson's, overspend and continuing cuts from the Conservative government in Westminster. Next week's cabinet report will be published setting out plans for how my administration can invest to keep every single library in Bristol open. We're looking forward to continuing to work with local community groups and councillors to transform and modernise our library service into the future. Building on the work of local label councillors, Estella Ticknell and Joe Sargent, both former branch librarians. Now, Anthony, that feels to me as a very political statement to put oh, out. Oh, really? Yes. Now, tell me well, your, what's your response to that? Well, I wouldn't, you know, you, you, you're, the, uh, you're, you're the host here, so I wouldn't want to disagree <laughs> with you. Um, as, a, as a, you know, a, a, well, I'd be very interested to see what an ordinary member of the public uh, thought about that. It is so overtly political. It is so biased. It is so, frankly, uh, it, in, in a couple of respects, incredulous, uh, that I, I'm, I'm amazed that that the, the the normal Labour backroom that writes all this stuff have the gall to write something as 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 political as that. I mean, that is people are just going to laugh at that, aren't they? But tell me what you really think. <laughs> <at> least, <I laughs> mean. Well, I I mean, if 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 I had been writing that press release, um, I might have perhaps apologised for the fact that despite the fact that the chair of the Scrutiny Commission uh, had been asking for uh, many, many days about the opportunity to find out more of what was going on because it was quite clear that something was going on, having the chance to uh, be told or given some indication was going, absolutely not, that's all been pushed away, that's not been, that's not been allowed. Suddenly this pops up just before the papers are issued for the, um, for the um, uh, a cabinet meeting, this is opportunism. This is what, frankly, gives people a bad name. And there's absolutely no way that, that my group will make a mistake of, say, of writing something as, as overtly political as that because everybody will see it for what it is. Mm. And, and the fact that it's been pushed back to 2020 when, of course, we're going into a mayoral election, I think that will have a lot of people questioning the... I don't want to say sincerity, but it seems like there is... Um, it's certainly a politically motivated decision. Yes, I mean you, you've got to put this in the context of the budget, which was uh, which the the, the all label administration. I, I quote from the press release, um, uh, were on a three line whip to to vote for, which actually is borrowing ten million pounds every in the in the context of closing libraries and and you know stopping crossing patrols and 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 public toilets and all the various and, and downgrading social care and all the rest it's borrowing 10 million pounds every year for the next 5 years 
borrowing mind, you know, not just sort of setting aside. We're actually going out and borrowing this money, which costs money to borrow. We're doing all this uh, uh, and yet doing, and, and making all those closures as well. Now, you've got to, you've got to ask yourself, where do you think that's heading as well? Where is that money going to be used? It certainly isn't a, a, a reserve fund because we've already got a reserve fund, which is, which is there to, to, to cover things. This is some sort of a slash fund. This is something which is going to be used to produce a rabbit out of the hat at the right time, maybe 2020, I couldn't possibly comment, uh, that will actually you know, make things look all very much better just about the time when people come to vote. And I abhor that. I mean, that's, that's absolutely not what a, res a responsible council should be doing. Final question, and I'm going to throw it to both of you. If we go back to libraries, what do you think in three, in one sentence, what do you think the future of the library service will look like? Emily, do you want to go first? <laughs> um, I like to think that they will be saved as, as these new spaces that we've discussed. Yeah, I think it takes um, political confidence to do that. And like you say, rather, rather other than loaded statements and political game playing, I think it would inspire confidence in the Bristol community that there's a reason that libraries are being saved and they're not going to become, you know, another political football in 2020. I think that's, it would be, I would like to see them being permanently saved um, and with all those productive and inspiring reasons that we talked about. Anthony? Well, I, I think they need to be in the right place. They need to be in, in vi they need to be viable economically, which is why we might be sharing spaces. And um, but they also want to be most importantly somewhere that people want to go, um, that that will find them valuable and inspiring, and will 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 move their lives forward. And and that's certainly what I got from my local library when I was a child. And uh, and I hope that we can bring that forward into into the twenty first century. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed hearing the views of our two guests here today. So remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballots Podcast, rate, review and subscribe on your preferred podcasting app. And don't forget to join us for episode five next week. So until then... Goodbye.